Welcome to Leadership Lessons. I'm Todd Gray, the Executive Director for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Leadership Lessons is a program where we talk to faithful leaders who are making an impact for the gospel. Our guest today is one of those leaders. Uh, Brent Leatherwood is acting president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And thank you for joining, if you're joining us live or later. Uh, Next week in Kentucky is our annual meeting in Severance Severance Valley Baptist Church in Elizabethtown. The 15th will be the Press On Pastors Conference. Uh, Pastors Conference President John Lucas has an incredible lineup of preachers and worship leadership to encourage and inspire and equip us for ministry and then the next day on tuesday the 16th is our our annual meeting and it'll be a it'll be a great and exciting time uh, brett thank you for letting me interview you on leadership lessons yeah well it is such a, a pleasure to be here and i i just appreciate the invite yeah so let's let's just start off getting to know you a little bit so take a minute and introduce yourself tell us about where you're from and where you grew up and anything that you'd like us to know Sure. Well, uh, Todd, just uh, thank you first and foremost uh, for all that you and the team are doing there uh, at the KBC to serve uh, Kentucky Baptists. Uh, I'm continually in awe of uh, state executives like you and, and all that you do uh, to, to resource our church and to, to, to represent your state so well. Uh, so, yeah. So as you have said, you know, I'm uh, I have the privilege of serving Southern Baptist right now as the acting president of the RLC and uh, more important than that, though, uh, I'm the husband of Meredith and a dad to, to three kids who are eight, seven, and five. So it is a, a very fun season of life, a busy season, uh, but it is a fun one. And uh, we are members of the church at Avenue South here in Nashville, and we've been there for seven years now. We were a part of the initial launch team that planted that church uh, out of Brentwood Baptist Church. That might be one uh, a name okay. that, that several folks might be uh, familiar with. And I serve as a, a deacon there, uh, and I've been a, a lifelong uh, Southern Baptist, attending SBC churches in every season uh, of my life, from, from childhood to now. So it is, uh, <laughs> my papa would be very proud to know that I, I uh, have the privilege of serving as acting president of the RLC in this season. Oh, that's outstanding. Brent, are your children boys or girls? Two girls and a boy. Uh, okay. The two oldest are girls, and right. they run around my son uh, like he's their own. So. <laughs> they rule. They rule the roost. So um, yeah. we were talking off camera here about being daddies of daughters. It took my girls about fifteen seconds to wrap me around their around their fingers. Was that your experience? Uh, how is it being daddy uh, daddy of daughters? It well, it is uh, it is a joy, uh, and yes, it probably was less than fifteen seconds uh, for them to realize that. Uh, they just ask daddy for anything and, and they will get it. Uh, but uh, no, it's they they just add to, you know, this season of life and, and just how incredible it is. And honestly, when uh, when when the doctor first told us that we'd be having a daughter, I was like, well, you know, I what do you do with a daughter? And <laughs> uh, but, you know, I quickly learned the ropes. And, and then by the time uh, we were pregnant the third time, the doctor said, you're going to have a son. I was like, well, what do you do with the son? Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, with the with daughters, you listen to them, and you listen to them a lot, and you uh, you go sparingly on advice. At least is what I've learned. You have an interesting last name, Leather Leatherwood. Any anything about the origin of or the history of your name? Uh, well, our family came over to America in uh, the mid 1600s, and so okay. we have been uh, lifelong, uh, well, generational. Uh, Americans since uh, before the time of the founding. Uh, they came over to Annapolis, Maryland, and essentially immediately went south uh, into Virginia, right around the Charlottesville area, and then into western North Carolina. And that that area has a whole bunch of Leatherwood history. Okay. Uh, but then there are a couple of branches that came over here to Tennessee, and uh, there's a branch that went over to Texas. So that is where wow. you will find most Leatherwoods. My, my grandfather uh, he was a big uh, genealogy expert for our last name. So that's, I, I know probably a little bit more than, than most people do about their last sure. name. You know more about yours than I do already. Anything interesting in your family tree, Brent, that you've discovered from your grandfather or or on your own? Well, let me, uh, probably the most interesting thing that I've learned in the last few years is uh, that initial generation, uh, they did not 
uh, agree uh, with the the uh, colonists in wanting to split from England. Mm. Uh, and we know that because after the Revolutionary War, uh, folks who fought for the Continental Armies, uh, they were given uh, basically a, a tax holiday. And our family didn't receive that. And, and so uh, we are led to believe that, uh, that our family in that time were actually loyalists uh, to the UK, which is uh, pretty interesting. That's very, that's very interesting. Can you imagine if Twitter would have existed back then? And, <laughs> and you know, we're, we're divided over so many things now. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been something to live yeah. during, that, during that time? Well, Brent, you recently stepped into the role of serving as acting president of the ERLC. So tell us a little bit about your responsibilities and how you aim to help the agency as they transition well. Sure. So, you know, I, I'm looking at myself at the moment merely as a caretaker and, and guardian uh, of this organization. In fact, I, probably our whole team uh, would say that uh, about themselves. And the reality is we love this organization and, and what it stands for. Uh, that's certainly the case for me. And, you know, we've we've we entered this season uh, and, and probably a couple of years ago, I, I would have been like a few of my former colleagues and, and maybe have pursued opportunities elsewhere. Uh, but over the last two years in particular, uh, I have truly grown to, to cherish the role of the RLC and the unique voice that we have on behalf of the SBC in the public square. And um, as someone who has worked uh, on the public side in previous roles, I, I know of so many elected officials and, and policy staff folks on the Hill and professionals in general out there who are looking for authenticity when it comes to groups that they are interacting with and mm -hmm. uh, far too many groups out there. They're motivated by politics and, and chasing after donors and, and just honestly political hackery. Uh, well, that's the exact opposite of what the RLC is. Um, so as we've entered the season of transition, I've made it a priority to ensure that we don't lose the authentic gospel voice, uh, that we have, uh, and instead we speak into the very complex issues that, that people are wrestling with right now. Uh, we speak into those with a deeply convictional and deeply gracious voice, uh, a voice that is informed by scripture and by the resolutions uh, that are passed by our SBC messengers at, uh, at each annual meeting. So, so that's what I view my role as uh, right now. Keep us moving forward. Uh, keep us serving Southern Baptists. Uh, keep us working in a cooperative spirit with our churches, our state conventions, mm -hmm. our, our fellow sister entities, and keep us focused on our ministry assignment because that's, that's what we can control right now. And, uh, and we are finding great joy uh, as we do so. How long have you been in the role, Brent? <laughs> uh, just a just a few months now. Uh, our our trustees uh, uh, gave me this role in September, and so uh, honestly, I, I'm still just trying to to figure out what all I'm I'm supposed to be doing. But uh, <laughs> I'm we, sure I'm sure you are. But, what, but yeah, we're we're doing good right now. What has been your biggest surprise since you've come into this uh, this position? So you were you were chief of staff before. And yes, so now sir. you're acting president. What's been your biggest surprise uh, in, in the role you're in now? Well, honestly, I, I'd probably say the, the amount of joy that it has brought me, uh, particularly yeah. over these last six to, to eight weeks in particular, uh, you know, I really have tried to, to live by the advice that I've given my team. Hey, we can't control, you know, what's happening at other entities. We can't control how long it takes for our presidential search team. Uh, to to find a, you know the next president of the year. those things will happen on their own. But what we can't control is how we serve Southern Baptists mm -hmm. and how we do so within our ministry assignment. And honestly, we have had just uh, it's been a delight to do that. And and so it's been uh, I think really reaffirming uh, for this team. Um, we have a talented group of folks that are serving Southern Baptists and. Uh, we've all just kind of there's been a cohesiveness uh, that has come in this moment. And, and that's been uh, that's been a real delight. You mentioned the joy and delight now. Uh, can you give an example of something that, that in the six or eight, eight weeks or 10 weeks you've been in acting president that's just been very encouraging to you, something that's happened or something that you've been part of that was just, uh, as you described, a joy or a or a delight? 
Well, uh, just this past Friday, we were a part of a private convening uh, of churches uh, on our pro-life work and, and how, to, uh, how to make sure that we are going to engage churches uh, over the next year and a half in the lead up to the 50-year mark since yeah. the disastrous Roe versus Wade decision. And just the feedback that we were getting from some of these pastors in the room uh, about how eager churches are for this moment, for us to get to a, a post Roe versus Wade moment, mm-hmm. uh, that, has been, that has been truly affirming. Uh, and then at the same time, I've been able to be a part of several meetings in uh, Washington, D.C., where I have had, and I wouldn't have had this experience previously in my, in my former roles, but in this role, uh, I got several elected officials just saying, hey, y'all keep doing what you're doing because your voice here on Capitol Hill, it is indispensable. Yeah, it, some people may you know, not agree with you on this or some people may not agree with you on that, but the fact that y'all are staying true to your ministry assignment is so helpful for us because we need an organization up here that is guided by a North Star. And, and so just having those sorts of conversation, conversations has been deeply affirming for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned ministry assignment a couple of times and uh, all of our folks may not be aware that the, what the ERLC is and that you actually do have a ministry assignment given to you by the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention. So what is the ministry assignment of, uh, of the ERLC? Sure. So essentially one is kind of more inward focused and one is more outward focused. The one that's inward focused, we are to equip the church with the moral demands of the gospel on very complex issues. And the other is to speak about those issues publicly from the church. And so, again, we are informed by scripture and we are informed by the resolutions that are passed each year at the annual meeting. So whether it's issues about life and human dignity, uh, religious liberty, uh, this this past this past summer, um, our messengers came together and uh, unanimously passed a resolution that condemned what is occurring in China right now against the Uyghur people there as a genocide. And that's important because we became the first uh, denomination in America to call it that, a genocide. And so now we, as the, as the uh, entity that is charged with going into the public square, we get to go in and, and tell and appeal to our elected officials, do more about this genocide that is occurring in China right now, confront them morally, and we get to do it and speak on behalf of our of our messengers and our churches who passed uh, that that historic resolution. So, Brad, I'm hearing you say, you know, a lot of folks uh, view our resolutions over the past couple of years as an opportunity to to divide us, and sometimes that does happen. But I'm hearing you say that, boy, these are marching orders for you guys. That for you, you're hearing from the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention, and it uh, it sends you it sends you into battle. Is that is that a fair understanding of how you view resolutions? Sure. I I, uh, I wouldn't necessarily use uh, uh, language to describe it like, you know, battling okay. or, or fighting uh, necessarily. But, uh, but my yeah, words. I mean, sure. yeah, no, no. But I mean, we do look at it. You're exactly right. Those are our marching orders. And, and when when our uh, when our annual meeting occurs and those resolutions, you know, the ones that affect our, you know, there are other resolutions that sure. uh, that are passed that affect other entities. But the ones specifically that come to us, we see those as uh, our our warrant to go into the public square and say, this is what Southern Baptists believe, and this is what our preference is. And that means a lot when you are speaking on behalf of 15.2 million Southern Baptists across the country. And, and our elected officials, they notice that. Uh, we're right now talking with members of the State Department uh, about the Uyghur genocide issue. And it's because that resolution passed. So you mentioned the, the the resolution on the genocide. Any other resolution that's been particularly empowering for you all in uh, in recent years? Uh, well, certainly the ones on uh, um, uh, the Hyde Amendment that was also mm-hmm. passed this this past June. Um, you know, right now the Hyde Amendment is under attack like never before, and we should be clear: the Hyde Amendment is language that is put into federal legislation ensuring that taxpayer resources will not go to pay for abortions. Uh, This has been a source of uh, bipartisan compromise now for decades. And we are potentially at a place where for the first time it could be taking out of those. We we don't think that is going to happen. There's one senator in particular, Senator Joe Manchin from right next door to y'all in West Mm -hmm. Virginia, 
who was saying he will not allow any spending bills to pass without the Hyde Amendment. But for some reason, if he were to relent, and look, that, that does happen in politics, we should be aware of that. If that were to happen, uh, the Hyde Amendment could be stripped. Uh, so knowing that just this past June, our messengers confirmed that this is important to Southern Baptists, it helps us to go before our federal legislators and say, y'all need to do this. Southern Baptists uh, want us to advocate for this, and, and that is certainly something we've done that. And in recent years, ones uh, about life, uh, those have been particularly helpful sure. uh, just in general. Um, and, and so those those are the ones that I think have been most informative for our work. Without resolutions, I mean, obviously, you you're, you represent Southern Baptist, the Baptist faith, a message would give you yes. something to go by. The scriptures obviously would. But apart from that, you're just kind of speaking about what's important to you. But when Southern Baptists speak through a resolution, then you're able to take that voice and, and, and carry it forward. Brent, you recently wrote an article uh, called uh, said titled What's Next for the ERLC? And in that article, you mentioned what you described as an exciting development uh, has been the announcement of our, your, your new project on technology ethics, the digital public square. Can you tell us a little bit about the digital public square? Right. So this is led by uh, my colleague, Jason Thacker, who I would submit is probably the leading voice in evangelicalism on, on digital ethics. And what I mean by that is, look, we routinely are speaking about issues that are important in the broader public square. So whether it's human dignity, life, religious liberty, uh, well, we're, we're taking that same approach and just continuing it in the digital public square, the online world. And you mentioned before, I mean, it's, it's all around us, uh, the, the various constraints and uh, issues that are brought up with social media. Well, Jason has this vision for just essentially saying, what do biblical ethics and how do they inform how Christians should operate within that digital public square? So when you are navigating websites online or you're, you're navigating conversations on social media. Uh, so we are excited about this project. Um, he just announced today that uh, we are uh, producing a new academic volume that is bringing together voices uh, from across uh, evangelicalism to speak into specific issues uh, related to technology ethics, emerging media, uh, emerging uh, social media, emerging technologies. Uh, so this is something I think a lot of Southern Baptists can be excited about because, you know, we're continuing our history of of just seeing a little bit beyond the horizon. And I got to tell you, one of the top issues that we are getting asked about routinely are issues related to online platforms, social media, mm -hmm. uh, technology ethics in general. And so uh, this is this is a good project. You all are demonstrating leadership. Leaders see faster and leaders see farther. And so uh, thank you for your, your work on the, the digital side. Uh, Brent, prior to coming to ERLC, this is in interesting to me. You served as the executive director of the Tennessee Republican Party. Tell us, uh, what did you learn about leadership in that in that role? Hmm, that's a good question. So, uh, look, that was a that was a sweet time for me. Uh, and it was a formative time for me, and and I certainly appreciated my time there. I would say, you know, on a personal level, uh, I learned how to build coalitions and, and thrive while working with them. Um, and the, you know, at the time that I worked there, the the GOP was laser focused on on reaching voters in every area and at every stage of life. So I was working with teams in urban areas and rural areas doing events with older voters and people who would be voting for the very first time, uh, building bridges in the Black and Latino communities in Memphis and with blue collar folks over in Appalachia. So honestly, it was, it was really exciting and fulfilling work. And, and probably the other lesson uh, that I learned is that you don't have to sacrifice your principles to be successful in politics. Mm. Um, I think we all have this characterization of politics as being you know, completely slimy and, and, you know, you're just having to constantly cut ethical corners and, and color outside the lines. Well, uh, you know, that temptation is certainly there, but it's there in every industry. Sure. Um, but that wasn't my experience. Uh, we had four, honestly, record-breaking years uh, while I was leading the, the TNGOP, and, and we did it, maybe not always perfectly, but, you know, I would submit we did it close to the right way. And uh, I always had a begrudging respect that was uh, afforded to me by 
uh, our our opponents on the other side of the aisle who said, you know what, uh, uh, he may have uh, beat us uh, at the polls, uh, but he never did so in a way that belittled us. And that's that's probably the thing that I am the most proud of. Well, that's encouraging. So you mentioned not having to sacrifice character to um, be successful in any area, but including in politics, which it seems like that is a real battle for those who who live out their calling or live out their vocational life in that in that area. Uh, tell, can you tell us someone who is who is a favorite political uh, leader in in your mind who maybe hasn't sacrificed character in order to be successful in politics? And it, it could be someone from the past or someone uh, who's a contemporary? I mean, if, if there's a contemporary person right now that uh, I, I think tries to do things the right way, and put it that way, uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Okay. Uh, he came to an event that uh, we held here in Tennessee, and I, I just said, you know what? It's, it's Tim Scott. I would love to learn more about him. So I went and picked him up at the airport uh, mm -hmm. when he came to our event. Good and job, just, by the way. I mean, a great leadership lesson example right there. If you want to learn from leaders, spend time with them. Find a yeah, way to get exactly. around this guy. Exactly. And um, uh, he just said, you know, I've got some time before I got to check in. I, I hear all this stuff going on in Nashville. Would you just kind of drive me around? So he, he gave me more opportunity uh, to just kind of talk to him and, and listen to him. And uh, he, he always uh, wants to... Uh, find the positive side of things. And he, he strikes me as an eternal optimist. And I think that Christians by our nature, we should be. Uh, and, and so I just learned hearing that he also was incredibly humble. And that is certainly something that is needed more in our politics. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we shared a couple of things and, and he specifically asked me to pray for him wow. uh, about a few things. And, and I was just really touched by that. So yeah. it, he seemed to find that he was not uh, the source uh, of of his influence. In fact, his his source was a higher source, and that was just very confirming uh, to hear from an elected official. That's encouraging, Brent. Who, who is someone else, maybe from the past, who has been a political leader that you've just kind of admired, either up close or from a distance, regardless of you know anything else about them? It's just a leader that you that you that you sure. think is effective. Well, I would say, uh, you know, being a good Tennessee boy, I have to mention Lamar Alexander. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Alexander always thought that more could be done in public policy, and, and he was willing to advance the ball with anyone who was just willing to get the job done. And I appreciated about them, that about him because I think so much of the job in politics is consensus building. So whether you're the president of the United States or you're a county commissioner, you're always trying to look for ways to build bridges uh, with folks that you are serving with. And I think Senator Alexander did a remarkable job uh, of that, both in the U.S. Senate and as governor of Tennessee. Uh, that, that is his, his record. And, um, you know, there's an old saying, uh, find the good and praise it. And, yeah. um, and he lived by that motto uh, while he was serving. And um, and I think that is certainly uh, someone that that I think would I would consider a political hero. Well, you've obviously benefited from being around leaders uh, like like that. So uh, how have you learned to navigate and show discernment around party lines while fighting for issues that Southern Baptists care care deeply, deeply about? How do you advise others, Brent, to avoid uh, polarizing comments, especially as it comes to politics? It's just a man, it's a yeah. third rail issue. When we get into conversations, we usually don't handle it very well. Uh, any any advice or experience there? Sure. So, I mean, uh, uh, I would start by saying this. A ask yourself a question. Um, uh, and you need to assess this. You know, have you fashioned an idol out of politics? Uh, and if you have there's a pretty good chance that you're going to make some polarizing comments uh, on behalf of that idol uh, that you have fashioned. And, and look, it's hard. It is very hard. We, we need to acknowledge that. It is very hard because of where our society right now is. Uh, everything is polarized. Everything mm -hmm. is about politics. I, I was just reading in the newspaper the other day, uh, there's, a, there's a small town up in Montana um, where recently this, this 
you know, formerly idyllic little area has just become completely consumed with neighbors attacking neighbors over all sorts of political degree disagreements, whether it's, you know, local issues or, or issues at the national level. And uh, this reporter was going through the town just asking the locals, like, what, what is going on here? And it's a bunch of different factors, uh, you know, the pandemic and some of the stuff that's happening, social media, all of it kind of factors in, but they all were lamenting uh, that this is what has happened in their town. And yet they're all also participating in it at the same time. It, and, and so, it, you know, for me, I've always tried to do th two things, which was when I was working day to day in politics, uh, leave my political work at the office. And that gave me time to decompress mm -hmm. from politics. And it also helped me not to just see people that I was interacting with through a purely political lens. Uh, so it's, it's often helpful if you don't see your neighbor as a political operative, but in fact, someone to be served. Right. Uh, and then uh, the second was, um, you know, I always like something that former U.S. Senator uh, John McCain said, and this is just to kind of paraphrase, but I might question someone's judgment or what policy end they are wanting, but I never question their motives. Yeah. And I think that's good advice for all of us in this day. Yeah. We, we may have deep disagreements on, on policy with someone, but we need to see them as fellow image bearers even throughout that disagreement. And, and as Christians, that should be easy for us, but oftentimes it's not. Uh, but I think that would help us navigate uh, some of what our culture is experiencing right now, for sure. Well, and I can't know a person's motives unless they tell me what they are, you know, or unless something is just done so over time, it's hard to know someone's motive. So uh, help me a little bit here on the spiritual side about, uh, I'm stuck on making a, an, an idol out of, out of politics or possibly mm. a political issue. If, uh, what would be an indicator for me on self-awareness is hard for all of us, right? So what would be an indicator for me that maybe I've crossed over and turned a political position or a, a political affiliation into, into an idol? How, how might I discern that? Are the political voices that you are listening to, do you find yourself always in 100% agreement with them? Mm -hmm. um, if you don't ever find, find yourself challenging what you are being heard, then I would say you, you are sitting under the teaching of, of some sort of political idol. Okay, and, and, that's helpful. And, and and you are you're not challenging that. And and look, you you can't read through the Bible. You can't read through the Bible and not whether whether you find yourself more to the right on the political spectrum or, or more to the left on the political spectrum. You can't be reading through the Bible and not see yourself challenging different policy perspectives that the that the respective parties uh, have. And um, it, so if if you're if you're doing that, I, that is certainly one check. If you find that nearly all of your conversations in your home context with your family revolve around politics. I would say that that is an unhealthy uh, attachment to to our uh, political world right now. So I mean, those are some of the the ways uh, that I would I would probably diagnose it. Well, that's really helpful. In in uh, my experience, when all of our conversations in the family are around politics, it's usually because I'm trying to change somebody else's point of view that I I feel the need to bring this up and and uh, and help them help them right. see things the same way I do. So, Brent, let's get back to ERLC. What is one issue that ERLC fights for that you are particularly passionate about? So, you know, you would ask that to our team and, you know, a number of my teammates would say life and uh, religious liberty is, is probably two of the more popular ones. Sure. And rightfully so. Uh, but the probably the one I'm particularly passionate about is is racial unity. Uh, I, I think that is that is so needed right now, um, especially in this chaotic culture that we are living in. And, you know, I loved what we were able to do as an organization a few years ago with our conference on racial unity that took place mm -hmm. in Memphis. And, and to me, I walked away from that conference thinking, wow, we we have really helped people understand the full implications of, of Ephesians 4 and Galatians 6 and, and Revelation 7. And, and I think that that moment 
uh, you know, marking 50 years since Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, that moment, I think, was so helpful for, I mean, we had 4,000 people come to this event and over a million people watched it on our live stream. And I, I just think that conference was so helpful and it was so needed. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's probably the issue that I think comes in and speaks to my heart the most. Brent, anything in your personal background that makes, makes um, racial unity a, an important issue for, for you personally? Anything in my background, uh, you know what, uh, my, my parents, uh, they got divorced at an early age. And mm -hmm. so, uh, um, you know, spent time moving around Chattanooga, then moved down to Atlanta and then moved down to South Florida. Okay. Uh, and, and so, uh, I got to work with, got to work with, I should say it like that. I was friends with people from all sorts of different cultures sure. down there, uh, yep. in, in Florida. And uh, I think it just uh, it, it just cemented in me uh, uh, building bridges in different communities, understanding different cultures. And I think that's that's certainly from my upbringing. Uh, and then, honestly, uh, my work here in Tennessee, uh, I ran a congressional campaign over in West Tennessee mm -hmm. um, that touched parts of Memphis. Uh, Memphis has a large African-American community and I love Memphis. Um, and so I just think that maybe some of that is kind of informing me. And, and I, you know, as, as someone who loves the Bible, uh, I really do think uh, that Re uh, Revelation 7, uh, we are going to see a great multitudes of people uh, that don't look like you and me, Todd, right. uh, in heaven. And, and so uh, I, I think that's just part of the kingdom work that we do here at the RLC. Thanks for mentioning West Tennessee. Uh, West Tennessee is like like West Kentucky is where the best barbecue is in both, oh, both yeah. states. Not only Memphis, but also uh, Dyersburg and Trenton and all those uh, Union City, all those spots around Absolutely. there. Uh, South Fulton. Um, what can the average Southern Baptist do? Well, wait, 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 I should stop uh, you there. So you mentioned those <laughs> towns. Uh, we would be remiss if any of y'all are looking to go on the barbecue trail in Tennessee. You need to stop at Miss Helen's Barbecue in Brownsville, Tennessee. Okay. Just do yeah, yourself a favor. I go on off that. of go off of I forty. Go to Brownsville. It's worth it. Go to the north side of town and Miss Helen's. It's in this little A-frame shack, and it's some yeah. of the best barbecue in the universe. Or just drive anywhere in West Kentucky, Graves, Graves County, uh, Fulton, anywhere there, and find find something with smoke coming out of it. And, yes, sir. Uh, some wood stacked up, and you'll probably find some good pulled pork. If you can't so, smell the smoke, you don't need to stop. You need to just keep on going. I love smell it. Smoke. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. We we are we are brothers after all. So, um, <laughs> what what can the average Southern Baptist do to fight for racial unity, uh, Brent? Well, you know, I think for some of our churches, if they are uh, located uh, in areas that are more diverse, it's probably easier. But one thing that we all can do uh, that I would recommend, uh, place a premium on teaching the full implications of Genesis 126 and 127. Teach it to your children, uh, your Sunday school class, your congregation. Help them to understand what it means that everyone is made in the image of God, uh, because I, I think if we see people the way God sees people, it will necessarily affect the way that we interact with those people. And it, it makes all those issues that we've talked about earlier, those political issues, hot takes on social media, it, it makes all those things secondary in terms of, hey, I'm, I'm just going to interact with this person because just like me, they carry the full weight of the image of God. And I need to respect that as a, as a Christ follower. Yeah, that's, that's, that's helpful. So you mentioned the church that you're a member of, uh, the church is at Avenue South and you serve as a deacon there. So tell us about your role in the local church and how is the local church crucial uh, to what you do at the ERLC? Sure. So I, I'm a deacon there and um, like most churches, we are the helpers of the church. And, and so that, that is everything from guiding our, our serving Saturdays uh, that we use to kind of bless the community uh, where our church is, uh, to, to obviously hospital visits, welcoming uh, new babies into the world and helping new families in that season of life, um, and uh, serving the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's done by our team. And, and gosh, what an awesome and great responsibility that is. 
Um, and so that's, you know, that is what we do. And, and for us at the RLC, you know, that's, that's a helpful reminder for me that the local church is, is the center of the SBC. I've yep. told our team, we need to keep that in mind, uh, that the local church, uh, that, that is who we are serving and in all that we do, let's keep that front of mind. So, you know, whether it's a small bivocational pastor to a church of 25 or a, a mega church pastor of, of 10,000, we serve each of those individuals equally, each of those congregations equally, and we want to provide resources to both, uh, helpful resources in whatever context you find yourself in. And, you know, I think when we do that, that that helps, you know, I've, I've kind of said this before, but that, that just really helps the kind of the beautiful circle of the cooperative program going, uh, right? Because when when we are out there, when we are advocating before the Supreme Court on a religious liberty issue, yeah. I, I think that, you know, that helps uh, or that is informed by members of our team that were, were trained at various seminaries uh, that that helps us go to our churches and those churches send out the best of us, which are our missionaries out into the field to spread the gospel. And I think all of that uh, helps come back to our local church. Uh, and when our members see that, they 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 want to give even more uh, to the cooperative program. And, and so I think that sort of cooperative spirit. Uh, only occurs when we keep the local church front of mind in all that we do. And Brent, when you're defending that case, you're you're serving your church. You're you're doing you're doing for your church. You're you're an outreach arm of of it. When you guys are producing resources, just to to your credit, the credit of the RLC, we've reached out multiple times about resources that you are putting together on abortion. I think you're doing something, some kind of curriculum maybe that a local church can use. Uh, so here, here's a question that state conventions struggle with. We provide mm. resources to churches. We, our mission is, says that we're created by churches for churches to help churches reach Kentucky and the world for Christ. We serve the local church, uh, but a state convention has to guard against becoming its own best customer. And what mm. I mean by that is that we're only producing things that we want to produce, or we're doing things that we think churches need, but maybe they don't actually need them. They're not actually serving them well. How does the ERLC guard against just doing the things that you want to do, but they're not really the thing the church needs you to do? Mm. Well, it probably goes back to a little bit of what we have touched on earlier, those resolutions. Uh, yeah. The resolutions that are passed at each annual meeting, the resolutions that are passed at state conventions, you know, we monitor those uh, to see what is relevant for our work um, and, and, and make sure that we are in fact attuned to what uh, the SBC wants us to be attuned to. And, and the most direct way that that comes to us is through uh, those annual meetings, through those resolutions. That's the most authoritative way. But at the same time, we have a number of folks that are reaching out to us and uh, pastors are uh, continually asking questions, uh, not just on life, religious liberty, but on you know, gender identity issues, on sure. technology issues, uh, you know, recently with uh, the challenges presented by COVID, uh, you know, matters related to that. So we, we are constantly taking in uh, all these sources that we get and trying to produce resources that are relevant to help pastors. And, and sometimes it's not even to help the pastor. Sometimes the pastor is just looking for a resource that they could say, hey, thank you for this. I am giving this to a right. member of my church who is is particularly uh, concerned about this, and and we want to serve that pastor well in doing so. One area where ERLC went pretty deep, and I, I assume you remain today, is on the Caring Well initiative. You had the conference, I believe, in Dallas. Some of our KBC folks went there for that. The mm -hmm. book that was written, and then the videos that go along with it. Any updates on the Caring Well initiative? Uh, what's what's next there, or have you kind of done what you're going to do and moving on? Where, where does that stand? No. Yeah, not at all. So this this is this issue is far too important for us to just just move on. So uh, a the caring well challenge is open. If you're a church uh, that would like to do more to uh, become safe from abuse and safe for survivors of abuse, I would encourage you to please come uh, and take the caring well challenge and partner with us on that. And the website is is still very active, caringwell.com. Uh, so we we would love and encourage. Uh, our churches to, to please participate in that. At the same time, coming out of the SBC annual meeting, uh, one of the major motions that was referred to us was a three-year assessment about how SBC churches have handled the issue of abuse. What are they doing about it? 
What have they done done to minister to uh, abuse survivors? And and what do they plan to do to prevent it in the future? And we have wrapped our arms around that. Uh, our trustees last month, or excuse me, in September, uh, they made an additional, or excuse me, a uh, an initial payment uh, to make sure that we were able to move forward to that. At the same time, we have started uh, some conversations with our sister entities about funding that because it is going to be a very expensive uh, proposition to do, but we are committed to carrying it out. And we think over the course of the next three years, we're, we're actually going to find out and take an inventory on what all of our churches are doing. It's a, it's a voluntary assessment, mm -hmm. uh, but, but we do think it will be very helpful uh, for the SBC to, to know what all is going on throughout the convention as it relates to the issue of abuse. So, Brett, thank you for mentioning voluntary. Uh, we have to continually uh, affirm that an entity like yours or a state convention like us, we have no authority over any local right. local church. We are servants of the of the church. Mm. So, in terms of protocols, just the church where your membership is, and, it's, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, so if you want sure. to defer to something else, that's okay. But when you think of the various ways that sexual abuse and or sexual misconduct, both can happen in a local church. So um, an adult to a child instance, a child to a child, um, a pastor to a church member, um, two church members or a pastor outside to with someone outside the outside the church. Does your church have a protocol in place on if something like this were to happen at, at your church? Here is step one, step two, step three. And if so, what what's on that list? So yeah, so the our church, uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to take credit for it because they they were moved in their own hearts uh, to okay. take the Caring Well Challenge. They came to the conference just like you, and it was an it was an eye opening experience for uh, my church's uh, team because they realized, whoa, we we thought we had things kind of up to snuff, and it made them realize there is so much more we can be doing, so many other safeguards checkpoints. I think a lot of churches, they they kind of think, oh, well, we do a background check. Right. Well, that's that's not going to get everything. And in many cases, it doesn't. Uh, and, and so they went above and beyond, not just taking the Caring Well Challenge, but they also partnered with an organization called Ministry Safe. And right. they came in and did, it, did an assessment of all that our church was doing and was not doing and made helpful recommendations to put in the protocols like you're talking about uh, so that they would be equipped that should those situations occur, and, and thankfully none have happened, uh, but should those situations occur, they would know what to do. And that's everything from media relations, you know, what do you say publicly, to addressing things internally. It's a, it is a, a far-reaching assessment, and, and I think our church is better because of it. And far more complicated than anyone can imagine. And if oh, it yes. happens, it's it, if it happens, it's too late to prepare. It's like fire insurance. You're if the fires if the building's on fire, it's too late to go back and do something. And and when something like this comes out, it quickly spreads. And yes, many churches are, are are they feel unprepared and then instinctually don't always may not do the right thing. So on Ministry Safe, we we work with Ministry Safe with our church planters and others who are involved in ministry here at KBC. Uh, one of the things we learned from their videos is that a background check of course every church needs to do those mm. but a background check is going to pretty much uncover almost zero uh, people because folks who would have a background are not going to apply probably for for the most part are going to apply for ministry positions or even to volunteer in a, in a in a church they also give indication that many of the the events that happen um, it's usually someone a, a child or a family may may know. Any idea on the price and what they charge you guys as a church Ooh. for an assessment? Any idea? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know yeah. that. What I, I I do know that they uh, they they I believe they have it graduated. So at different size, size. churches pay different prices. Uh, so I, I think that's probably very helpful. That's very helpful uh, for churches based on on your size. But no, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, there were just little things such as. Uh, uh, interview questions, yeah. uh, the the tone and the, uh, uh, the 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 kind of the the way that you ask certain questions to prospective candidates that want to work in your church can be very helpful in determining whether there is more there than what is revealed in a background check. I mean, just something yeah. as simple as that 
uh, I think is it just was eye opening for our team. And, and I think it's part of now what should be considered best practices yep. for our churches. We also I should mention informed by that. One of the assets that have come out of the Caring Well Challenge is our hiring guide. Uh, you can find that on ERLC.com. Okay. We have a hiring guide uh, that is very much along these lines to ensure that churches are putting in place and implementing the, the best practices. Well, uh, I'm sure point people to the the resource if, if they just want to get started understanding more about how a church can can care well. Brent, let's talk about your family a little bit before we finish up. Uh, you and What's your up? wife, Meredith, have three children. We, we've talked about that. How do you balance a, a, a busy life, a ministry, and a calling with your family responsibilities and your desire to be a good husband and a, and a good father? Sure. Well, so my wife, uh, she she has her own business and she runs it out of our home. She works in the Christian music industry, so you know we're in we're in Nashville, so we're we're yeah. one of those families uh, that are in the music industry. And um, so most days, just to help her because she does have some unique challenges associated with running that business. You know, I try and do drop off and pick up uh, most days. Um, you know, I've I've got just a, a little bit more flexibility to do that in this season than she does. And uh, honestly, I, I use that time uh, for you know using uh, using one of our favorite words, you know, catechizing our children, uh, mm -hmm. really trying to continually have and reinforce gospel conversations with them. Um, and so uh, we 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 enjoy that time together uh, each morning and, and each afternoon. And and honestly, if we're not at uh, ball fields, uh, we're probably at some church event uh, going to because we do think it's important uh, in, in this in this world where um, it, it just seems like there's less church programming uh, mm -hmm. available to families than there there was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. We try and look for opportunities. Uh, to get to church more often and and just be in that community with our fellow believers at church, and so that's that's honestly a part of what we do. But you know, like I said earlier, this is uh, this is a very busy season of life. It's a fun one, uh, but it is certainly busy. And so uh, we do try and unplug uh, most nights and and be around the supper table each night as a family. Mm -hmm. uh, we we think that time is crucial uh, for the formation of our children and honestly, just the healthy maintenance of our marriage. Uh, and we want we want our children to see my wife and I just just talking to each other about our day, expressing what we're happy about, what maybe some challenges were and explaining to our children why we feel that way. And and then, uh, you know, kissing them as they go to bed. That's yeah, good. Uh, so, good. 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 So, practice. Yeah. Hey, man, I love it that you said that you're trying to find more opportunities to be with your church family, with your with your with your biological family. Uh, why is that? Why do you want to see why do you want your wife and children and you together as a family to be more often around your church family? You know, I because I want my children to have some of the same experiences that I had. Uh, and so what I mean by that is I, I want them to think of. Hey, if I've got some some you know when they're older, when I've got some free time, mm -hmm. maybe church is doing something. Like just yeah. think through that grid first. Yeah. Uh, so whether it's a social club or a church softball team, uh, going to a uh, you know church gym for a pickup basketball game, like I want them to be thinking through that first yeah. before maybe you know doing other things that are out there. But just just having that uh, as a as as part part of, of their kind of routine life rhythm, I think is very important. And, uh, you know, churches, we, we are, we're called to provide that we're called to be in community with each other, you know, but mm -hmm. there's 168 hours a week. And, uh, you know, I think right now, a lot of churches are only together, maybe one or two hours on Sunday. And yep. that's just a lot of other time. And, and I, I want that to be filled with church, honestly, uh, well, as well those as other things. Those church folks are going to love your kids. You know, they're they're going to exactly. learn. They're going to learn their names. So these are other positive adults who are going to invest in your children's lives. That uh, what I mean, what a, what a huge opportunity, uh, Brent. So you care about all these issues that the RLC is involved with. You study them. You're living around them. You're working with colleagues who are talking about these important matters. How do you try to educate your children on some of the things that are Im important mm -hmm. to you on these issues? Yeah. Well. You know, it's actually uh, reminds me of something we said at the top. Uh, and I, you know, it wasn't meant as a rebuke to you. You were just asking a question. But, uh, you know, I try and it, language, I think, is important. Words matter. 
uh, and, and it mattered in my former roles in, in politics where I was writing speeches. And I think it matters in the written word uh, where, where God is revealing things to us. And, and so you know, one small way that I do that is I, I, try, and, I try and teach my kids that you know, I am, I'm not a fighter. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not in, I'm not engaged in a you know battle so to speak. Although spiritual warfare is very real, and I want to teach sure. them about that. But um, I think that fighting language is just yeah. everywhere in culture right now. And so what I try and help them understand is that my role is to help people understand why we believe in our family and in our church, why we believe what we believe, and why that informs us about certain positions that we take. Uh, even positions that that some people are going to laugh at and some people are just really not going to like. Uh, but that's okay, uh, because in the written word, we're told to expect that uh, and count it as a joy. And so it's not something that we should shy away, away from. And then we get to have, you know, conversations about uh, bravery. And, you know, my, sure. my, my two daughters, their favorite Bible story is uh, about the story of Esther. And, and wow. they, you know, they're constantly looking for Esther moments. And, um, and so that's, that's, that's one way it's kind of played out in our home life. Hey, I think that's super helpful. So what I hear you describing is not the, it's not warfare language or battle, battle language, which I was using, but more like an ambassador type language. You, you're an yeah. ambassador for the king and, and you're representing his views on these issues and you want to do it in a winsome and caring and respectful way. Is that a, is that a fair estimate of your oh absolutely approach. yeah well i mean we we talk about our church being an embassy for the kingdom all the time yeah. and and so our little family we want to be a little platoon uh you know for for that embassy and and just you know going out into the culture and just showing people whether whether it is small things like hey we're out at a restaurant we're going to pray together as a family like let's just let's just take that i mean a lot of us do that but it's important that we do it uh but something as small as that to uh, to something as you know, actually is uh, sharing the gospel with someone, and why mm-hmm. we need to do that, uh, why we are informed by the Great Commission, why we are told to do that. Um, you know, so um, things big and small, we certainly want to impress that upon our children, and and uh, hopefully we're doing a good job at it. Well, I think that ambassador language could very well change some of our dispositions about how we come at these issues and how we talk about them to to other other people. It's different when you're representing someone. So. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see social media playing a role, both positively and negatively, in issues advocation? Mm. Well, we talked a little bit about this with the Digital Public Square project, and and certainly a lot of that is going to be equipping the church on social media and Christians about how to engage on social media. Um, but, you know, exactly as your question said, it is uh, it is both a blessing and a, a curse. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if I could make one change to social media. It would be the elimination of likes and retweets and and favorites. Just read them. Uh, because, Just read the statements. Yeah. Right. Well, because in, in my mind, the, the 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 best use of social media is for information sharing and information gathering. I think social media it is is at its most useful, although it, it does come with some downsides. But like during breaking news events, like just helping to understand what might what might be happening on the ground, uh, that's when it's at its most useful. But you know, too often it descends into just essentially a soapbox of grievances and the incentives are there because of the likes and the retweets and the faves. Uh, the incentives are there to just say the most outrageous thing and, and see who all you can either get to interact with you or get to like what you are saying. And um, too often times social media just more or less confirms our priors, uh, you know, uh, just like we were talking about with political idols. Oftentimes, uh, it just uh, it just conforms to the way that we want to see things, and we don't actually challenge uh, what we are seeing on social media. Um, but at the same time, it has certainly been a, it is it is democratized information, um, and and I think it allows uh, more people to see what is going on in the world around them and 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 share uh, what is happening in people's lives. And so, in that way, it's it's done a great positive. And uh, you know, uh, while the the challenges presented by COVID uh, were certainly great and in many cases lamentable. I forgot who it was and I should, I should remember this because I'm, I'm going to cite it, but someone pointed out that probably uh, that Sunday in March where nearly every church was, was closed because of COVID, potentially more people may have heard the gospel that Sunday because people were tuning in from their, 
their homes, their their places where they reside, and people were overhearing it that never would have been in church otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that that's happened because of advances in technology that allow us uh, to do something like that. And 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 so even in the midst of chaos and lamentable situations, there is great good going on that we need to appreciate as Christians. Yeah, that's excellent. So on your Twitter feed, you have a pinned tweet that shows a picture of several members of the ERLC staff, and you make this comment. You said, not every member of the ERLC team is here, but this is the quote that comes to mind about each one of them. I'm I'm not a hero, but I've served in a company full of them. Major Richard, Richard Winters uh, made that statement. Uh, mm-hmm. who, who are some who are some heroes that you've seen from ERLC that the people that are doing work that maybe no one knows much about? Ooh, oh, that is a, oh gosh, that's a great question. Okay, so uh, one uh, that comes to mind is uh, our CFO, Bobby Reed. He has been at the RLC for 22 years, faithfully wow. serving. He has uh, served in any number of capacities. He served across various administrations. He started under Dr. Land. Uh, he is he's served through the Russell Moore years and he will be here uh, probably for the, the next president. And so uh, the, just that sort of faithful uh, servant mindset kind of embodies what I think all of us are about at the RLC. Uh, at the same time, uh, there's a member of the team. Her name is Jen Kentner, and she mm-hmm. has done incredible work on uh, the abuse issue for us. She we met has, Jen. We uh, met Jen recently. We reached out to her for some information, and she joined in a uh, a, a Zoom or Teams call with us, and right. super, super, incredibly helpful. Jen is she is she is fantastic, and she is uh, getting ready to move to Dubai, uh, where she is going to teach uh, uh, women students over at a seminary uh, over wow. in the Middle East, and and so I mean. We've got great faithful servants like that who are constantly looking and thinking through, how can I serve churches? Uh, how can I equip pastors? Uh, how can I be uh, more faithful to the gospel? And, and we've got a, a whole team of them like that. And so, yeah, that, that quote from uh, uh, Major Winters, uh, it's, uh, it, it is the quote that came to mind uh, the, the last night of the SBC annual meeting when, when we were all together as a, as a team. And I, I, I truly think that this is a this is a team that punches above its weight. Uh, mm-hmm. We are uh, we we um, it is a talented group of individuals that are committed to the gospel and committed to serving Southern Baptists. Sounds like the best days of the ERLC could be out in front of them and 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 not behind them. Thank you for highlighting the good work of your your team members, Brent. Brent, what is something that you wish all Southern Baptists knew about the ERLC? Something that I wish all Southern Baptists knew about the ERLC. Um, uh, well, I would hope that everyone would know that uh, each person on this team is a uh, committed Christian, an Orthodox Christian, a Baptist faith and message 2000 affirming uh, Southern Baptist uh, who each day comes to work with a joy filled spirit. Um, you know, there. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, the the ERLC is the political entity of the Southern Baptist Convention. No, uh, that's not the case. Uh, we we don't view uh, our work through a politics first mindset. We view it through a gospel first mindset, and we view ourselves honestly. Uh, you know, think of IMB and NAM. They're they're sending out mm-hmm. missionaries. They're sending out church planters. Well, we have that sent mindset. And we feel that we are sent into the public square uh, to joyfully represent Southern Baptists. And, you know, we we first and foremost, you know, we're going out there to to help people understand, you know, the annual resolutions that are passed, the policy preferences that we're that we uh, prefer, but uh, to also take the occasion to have gospel conversations with people uh, and to present the cost, the gospel in a public manner and to live out the gospel. Uh, we think that is so important. And so that's that's what I want people to know about the ERLC. And uh, and we consider it a mighty privilege to do these things. Brent, I'm grateful for your ministry and grateful for you taking the taking the time. Thank you for stepping up and uh, hey, leading I, as uh, go ahead. Yeah, can I say one more thing? You bet, please. I, I need to thank you uh, and all the Kentucky Baptists uh, that are watching uh, for two people in particular. David Prince, 
and Lynn Trailer. Uh, okay. Dr. Yep. Prince is the pastor at Ashland Avenue Baptist and Lynn Trailer. Uh, he's the director of missions at the Liberty yep. Association of Baptists, and they are our trustees. Mm-hmm. And we are so thankful uh, that they are on our trustee board. And uh, we're so grateful that uh, they bring the spirit of the KBC uh, to our trustee board. Two, two good men, two good Kentucky Baptists. We're grateful for that they're serving in this in this area. Can I pray for you and pray for the ERLC? Absolutely, please. All right. Dear Lord, thank you for Brent. Thank you for your calling on his life and thank you for his story, dear Lord. Thank you for how you're using him right now. Thank you for opening the store for him to step in and serve in his interim capacity and please give him the wisdom and grace that he'll need to do it. We pray for the ERLC, dear Lord, that you would give them wisdom that they can know how to address these issues. And Father, I pray that they would have Jesus's position on everything that they look into and that they would just provide good resources to help Kentucky or help Southern Baptist churches all across the nation, and that we would represent you well in the world. Please help them as they search for their next president. Please give them a, a godly leader who can step in and, and keep leading this, this entity forward. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brent. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Leadership Lessons. This program is made possible by the generous contributions by Kentucky Baptist through the cooperative program. For more information about the Kentucky Baptist Convention, go to kybaptist.org. And for news about how Kentucky Baptist churches are making a difference, go to kentuckytoday.com.